back for the most subdued and uncontroversial panel of the day. Um, I'm sure no one spent any part of June debating relatives over a certain opinion uh, or other opinions. Um, I mean, I think, well, so Dave, first Dave, by the way, <laughs> he's here, so um, Dave gets guns, Kelly gets opiates, opioids, and Evan gets abortion, which he took the reins of that ably. Uh, so uh, I will introduce them before they speak. So we're going to start off for no discernible reason uh, with abortion. Um, and we'll start off uh, with Evan Burnick, uh, who was I first met when he was a Cato intern in the spring of 2013. And he has gone on to bigger and greater things as a professor of law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. He teaches con law, crim law, crim pro, ad and law legislation. From 2021, he was a visiting professor at Georgetown University Law Center and executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. And uh, I'm in the middle of his excellent book with Randy Barnett on the 14th Amendment for a future podcast. And hopefully that book will be, I think it will be one of the definitive books on the 14th Amendment going forward. So, Evan. <clears throat> So uh, Trevor generously failed to notice that I was a very obnoxious and irritating Cato intern and hopefully a little bit less obnoxious and irritating as an academic, although opinions of that, that are split roughly down the middle. So it was hard enough, uh, even with the aid of the patient and diligent editors of the Cato Supreme Court review to summarize and critique Dobbs and predict the future of abortion in America in 44 pages. I only have 15 minutes, but I'm going to try my best. In Dobbs, the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. As of this day, before Constitution Day, abortion has been banned in 16 states. Other states are expected to follow suit. A federal ban on abortion after 15 weeks has been proposed. No Supreme Court decision has so quickly resulted in the criminalization of so much conduct that was once afforded the highest constitutional protection. Now, in one sense, Dobbs was unsurprising. Roe Casey's days were numbered since the appointments of Justice Amy Coney Barrett produced a solid 6-3 conservative majority. In another sense, however, Dobbs is shocking. Justice Sam Alito's opinion for the court takes a scorched earth approach. It strives to leave nothing left of Roe or Casey. It's had an immediate impact on the lives of millions. It's already generating new legal conflicts. And it's cast a cloud of uncertainty on the status of other constitutional rights. As you may have already gathered, I regard Dobbs as a disaster, and I'll say a bit about why. Mostly, however, I want to explain how we got to Dobbs, what it says, and where it leaves us. And we need to start with Roe. In 1973, when Roe was decided, abortion was a crime in most states. Most criminal abortion laws were the product of an anti-abortion campaign led by elite physicians that began in the late 1850s. These criminal laws marked a break with the common law of abortion, which generally permitted abortion before quickening, roughly 10 to 14 weeks into pregnancy. By the late 1960s, a majority of Americans believed that abortion shouldn't be a crime, but decriminalization efforts had stalled. Pro-choicers who were reeling from high-profile legislative losses, who were concerned by pro-life arguments for prenatal constitutional personhood, shifted to constitutional litigation themselves. Before the Supreme Court, lawyers representing Norma McCovey, Jane Roe, 
and the state of Texas both argued that the Constitution took sides on abortion. Texas defended its abortion ban by arguing that the 14th Amendment required states to protect prenatal persons. Texas lost 7-2. At the time, criticism of Justice Harry Blackmun's opinion was primarily limited to pro-life circles. But today, Roe is generally regarded as a mess of an opinion. And so it is. For example, Justice Blackmun says that the answer to the question whether the Constitution protects abortion turns on the right to privacy. This right was central to Griswold v. Connecticut, recognizing the right to use contraceptives. But Blackmun never identifies where in the Constitution this privacy right comes from. And then we get this momentous declaration. This right of privacy is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Why? Blackman doesn't explain. He states that during the early stages of pregnancy, strict scrutiny of abortion restrictions, the highest level of constitutional scrutiny reserved for fundamental rights is constitutionally required. He then sketches a framework for balancing abortion rights against state interests, in the context of which the most important stage of the pregnancy is viability, the point at which the fetus has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb. Why? Again, Blackman doesn't explain. Roe's failure to answer such basic questions about its constitutional premises was the basis for Harvard professor John Hart Ely's memorable charge that Roe is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. His critique resembled conservative then Yale law professor, Judge Robert Borg's uh, critiques of Griswold and later Roe. Both regarded the use of the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment to protect fundamental rights with great skepticism. Bork considered the doctrine of substantive due process illegitimate, as did later Justice Antonin Scalia. Roe didn't start the abortion wars. Republican strategists seeking to appeal to pro-life Catholics whom they thought they could dislodge from the Democratic Party successfully lobbied Richard Nixon to campaign against abortion on demand in 1972. And what became, began as a strategy for targeting Catholics was expanded to make conservatives more generally into Republicans. Still, Roe helped make control of the Supreme Court a central issue for rank and file Republican voters and thereby for Republican presidents. It's President Reagan who first prioritized anti-Roe judicial selection. When Reagan's Republican successor in office, George H.W. Bush replaced pro-Roe justices William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, Roe's overruling seems certain. That didn't happen. In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, five Republican-appointed justices voted to preserve Roe. But a three-justice, all-Republican plurality, replaced Roe's trimester framework with an undue burden standard that was more deferential to the government. Now, even before viability, states had a lot of space to restrict abortion, but they still couldn't ban pre-viability abortion. Casey produced several separate opinions, the most significant of which was Justice Antonin Scalia's stirring dissent. A major theme in Scalia's dissent was majoritarian democracy. Because the Constitution's text doesn't speak to abortion, Scalia argued that such value judgments are left to democratic majorities. Yet another theme was tradition. Scalia cast Roe as a particularly damaging variation on a broader theme in the court's substantive due process cases. He accused the court in case after case of ignoring long and clear traditions, clarifying ambiguous constitutional text. 
In Washington v. Glucksburg, involving a claimed substantive due process right to assisted suicide, the courts enshrined Scalia's traditionalism as substantive due process law. Glucksburg held that only rights deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty would qualify as fundamental. And a claim right had to be given a careful description. In application, careful meant narrow. Consider Angel Rich, who challenged the constitutionality of the Controlled Substances Act, arguing that the act infringed her fundamental liberty rights to preserve her own life. She claimed that it did so by prohibiting her from using marijuana to ameliorate a life-threatening wasting syndrome. The Ninth Circuit, applying Glucksburg, didn't look to history and tradition for a right to preserve one's own life. Rather, it looked for a right to preserve one's own life by using medical marijuana, and unsurprisingly concluded that no such fundamental right was deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Now, the court's commitment to Glucksburg proved unstable, thanks in large part to Justice Anthony Kennedy. A swing vote on a court roughly evenly divided along ideological lines, Kennedy authored two substantive due process opinions worth commenting on here. In Lawrence v. Texas, the court held unconstitutional a Texas ban on same-sex sodomy. In Obergefell v. Hodges, the court held that same-sex couples have the right to marry. Lawrence didn't mention Glucksburg. Obergefell discussed it only to decline to apply it. But Glucksburg didn't disappear, and the court applied it in recognizing substantive due process rights to keep and bear arms and not to be subjected to excessive fines. On the 2016 campaign trail, Republican nominee Donald Trump promised that if elected, he would appoint pro-life justices. As president, he had the opportunity to appoint three justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Dobbs arose from a challenge to Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks, well beyond, uh, before the point of viability. And on May 3rd, 2022, Politico published a leaked draft opinion indicating that the court was about to overrule Roe. It did not substantially change from draft to final. Justice Alito's opinion for the court in Dobbs closely resembles Justice Scalia's Casey dissent in both its tone and traditionalism. Justice Alito's analysis begins not with substantive due process, but with his summary dismissal of an argument that abortion restrictions violate the Equal Protection Clause by discriminating on the basis of sex. Alito pronounces this argument squarely foreclosed by precedence. He does take note of an amicus brief by the American Historical Association, which documented how arguments in favor of late 19th century abortion laws were saturated with sexism. But he declined to give weight to this evidence, stating that this court has long disfavored arguments based on legislative motives, and pointing out that the evidence in this brief consisted only in statements from supporters of the laws, not legislators. Then we get the main event, substantive due process, the argument that liberty includes abortion rights. Here, Alito applies Glucksburg. He dives into abortion history, sweeping through common law and founding era authorities. All authorities indicate that the abortion of a quick child was a common law crime. None indicates that abortion was ever a legal right. And most significantly to his analysis, by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, many states banned pre-quickening abortion. Alito then distinguishes abortion from other substantive due process rights. He doesn't say that rights to marry a partner of the same sex, use contraceptives, or have sex satisfy Glucksburg. But he does say that they don't implicate fetal life. 
So how are judges to review abortion laws going forward? Scholars have long observed that the court's standard of review of government restrictions on non-fundamental liberty rights, rational basis review, can take two forms. One form, rationality review, is, is meaningful. The court has held unconstitutional under rationality review a number of government actions upon demonstration that the government wasn't plausibly pursuing any legitimate goal. The other, conceivable basis review, essentially dictates victory for the government. Dobbs applies conceivable basis review. Alito writes that a law regulating abortion must be sustained if there is any rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve a legitimate state interest. Doesn't matter whether it actually did think that. The court easily upholds Mississippi's 15-week ban. So much for the summary. Now for the critique. On Alito's account, Roe and Casey were badly reasoned because they neglected text, history, and precedence. Roe talked a lot about history, but Alito is right that a lot of that talk was inaccurate. Roe made important errors about the common law, and it neglected the significance of the rise of pre-quickening prohibitions on abortion prior to the 14th Amendment's ratification. But it's downhill from there. Alito's textual critique focuses on Roe's trimester framework and the viability line. Obviously, neither of these are specified in constitutional text. But then, neither are the tiers of scrutiny on which Alito relies in dividing fundamental rights from non-fundamental rights or the conceivable basis test he applies to abortion rights. You can't simultaneously blame Roe for going beyond the text and then go beyond the text. Still weaker is Alito's criticism of Roe and Casey for neglecting precedent. Alito criticizes them for neglecting a prenatal life distinction between abortion and other fundamental rights, but offers no text or history in support of this distinction. The only cases that he cites in support of this prenatal life distinction, Roe and Casey. Alito's own inquiry into the meaning of the 14th Amendment is dictated by precedence. He applies Glucksburg. Is Glucksburg originalism? Alito, Barrett, Gorsuch, and Thomas have all identified as originalists. And it does seem intuitively obvious that focusing on legal history would help us understand what a constitutional provision guaranteeing liberty originally meant to people present at ratification. But Glucksburg doesn't just require an inquiry into whether a right is deeply rooted. It requires that rights be defined narrowly at a low level of generality. And no originalist defender of Glucksburg has ever persuasively answered why that is. Why is framing rights as a low at a low level of generality more likely to capture the original meaning of liberty? Why think that either the framers or the ratifiers or an ordinary member of the public would be more likely to read liberty to encompass narrow rights rather than broad rights? How could one defend what originalists take to be the uncontroversial proposition that Brown v. Board of Education is correctly decided if one looked to determine whether there existed a narrow right to attend non-segregated public schools in 1868, as opposed to a more general right of citizens to be free from racist exclusion from public institutions? Speaking of discrimination, originalists generally agree that the 14th Amendment imposes some kind of anti-discrimination requirement on the states. They've drawn extensively upon abolitionist and Republican constitutional argumentation in the years leading up to and following the Civil War. There is not a word in Justice Alito's opinion about any of this. The anti-discrimination argument against abortion restrictions is the best known, most elaborated argument that Roe has correctly decided despite being badly reasoned. It holds that abortion restrictions discriminate on the basis of sex because they force some people and not others to perform a particular social role, motherhood. 
They require some people, and not others, to endure physical and psychological burdens that range from the nausea-inducing to the extremely painful to the life-threatening. By the way, Alito says nothing about whether the Constitution might require life or health exceptions to abortion restrictions. And so the argument goes, they do so because of stereotypes about women. In one paragraph, Justice Alito dismisses this argument. He disregards evidence of discriminatory intent because he says all we have is evidence of the intentions of the supporters of 19th century anti-abortion campaign, not legislators. But legislators work together with leading supporters of the campaign as documented in the amicus briefs that Alito cites in his opinion. And in a concurrence in a different case, documenting the anti-Catholic roots of state prohibitions on public aid to sectarian schools, Alito didn't cite a single legislator responsible for the prohibition at issue and yet was able to make a convincing to him case that the prohibition was the product of bigotry. Alito's attempt to withdraw the court from the field of abortion-related conflict will also fail. Prenatal constitutional personhood has always been a prominent constitutional position within the pro-life movement. Dobbs doesn't embrace fetal personhood, but Alito's prenatal life distinction invites pro-life arguments that the Constitution protects prenatal life. Pro-life legal scholars have submitted amicus briefs and published op-eds and essays arguing that the Equal Protection Clause requires states to prohibit abortion and called for Congress to enact prohibitory legislation. And just in the past few days, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham floated a ban on abortion after 15 weeks to the applause of the conservative editors of National Review Online. Nor will reproductive rights advocates cede constitutional ground anytime soon. The view is ascendant on the left, the Supreme Court isn't capable of bringing about transformative social change. But the prescriptions that follow from this critique often involve congressional and executive action that will inevitably end up before the Supreme Court. State conflicts over abortion will generate a range of legal questions. What if an abortion restricting state seeks to punish a local newspaper for advertising abortion that's available in an abortion permitting state? The court that decided Roe held this unconstitutional under the First Amendment but it's an open question whether that precedent will hold up after Dobbs, based as it was on abortion being a constitutional right. State con federal conflicts will also arise. The FDA regulates medication, abortion, uh, 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 medication abortion drugs. Are states permitted to regulate a drug more harshly than the FDA? We'll see. Finally, there will be conflicts over other substantive due process rights. Some pro-lifers consider contraceptives that result in the destruction of fertilized eggs to be abortifacients. Is a state's sincere belief that a drug that acts as an abortifacient is enough to justify a prohibition, even if that belief runs against the current scientific consensus about whether it does? It may be hard to imagine the court overturning a Burgefell and Lawrence and allowing states to ban marriage between same-sex couples, to prohibit same-sex sodomy, same-sex marriage polls pretty well. Then again, so did Roe. So we, we end where we begin, with constitutional conflict. Roe didn't start it. Dobbs won't finish it. There will be more battles. It's conceivable that the court is aware of and prepared for this. But after Dobbs, it doesn't seem plausible. Thank you, Evan. I'm sure no one has any questions, but we're gonna go, we'll get to that later. Uh, 
Coming up next is uh, Kelly Deneen Gillespie, an Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Health Law Program at Creighton University School of Law, where she teaches healthcare law, bioethics, torts, and public health law seminars. She holds a PhD with distinction in healthcare ethics from St. Louis University before attending law school, and this is a very interesting part of the case she will discuss, it's in her article, uh, she was a nurse in neurosurgery and transplant ICUs, clinical research, as well as with functional neurosurgeons caring for people with chronic persistent pain. So she's uniquely qualified to talk about Ron in the United States, which deals with prescribing of opioids. Kelly? All right. Thank you, Trevor, and thanks to Tommy and Katie and everybody at the Cato Institute that put this together and the um, review. It was my honor to be part of this. Um, I want to start by acknowledging a couple of people. Uh, the first is Professor Jennifer Oliva, who is a professor of law at UC Hastings, who was my co-author on two um, the Miki briefs we wrote on behalf of professors of health law and policy in this case. Um, and the other person I would like to thank is Dr. Jamie Henderson, who's a functional neurosurgeon now at Stanford, um, with whom and for whom I had the honor of working in the late 90s and early 2000s, in part taking care of a small um, cohort of patients with chronic and persistent pain, refractory to other medical treatment. Um, those and other uh, experiences I had at the bedside and in nursing uh, deeply inform the work I do now in a very different place. All right. Drugs always elicit very, very strong, sometimes visceral reactions. So I want to say, I want to make one disclaimer before I say more. My disclaimer is that yes, drug poisonings and drug related harms are among our most serious public health problems in the United States, okay? Um, where I have deep disagreements are with the public policy responses to these crises as they are almost never tailored to the underlying goals of decreasing the overall harms related to drugs, okay? And I want to acknowledge, uh, because when I talk about this case, I often am viewed as the person defending the quote unquote pill mill doctors. I want to acknowledge that there were and will be a very small number of physicians and other authorized prescribers who will use their professional licensure at the state level and their certificate of registration from the Drug Enforcement Agency to engage in a criminal enterprise, okay? As to engage as drug dealers, distributors as conventionally understood, right? And those are the very people that Section 841A1 of the Controlled Substances Act, um, those are the very people for whom there should be the potential of conviction and the possibility of even lifetime in prison and a million dollars in fines, right? Um, but that number is far smaller than the number of prescribers who have been investigated and prosecuted in recent years as federal law enforcement and some federal judges um, have, tra have transformed, to use a metaphor from this morning, their existing wrenches into hammers to erode the standards for prescriber convictions under Section 841 
to the point that at least three circuits had transformed a crime written with scienter requirements of knowledge or intent, which did and remain the scienter requirements for laypersons prosecuted under the exact same statutory provision to a strict liability offense, such that proving that the prescriber, quote unquote, departed from the usual course of professional practice was enough to secure a conviction for this felony offense, full stop. And worse yet, that standard was judged not even by the rigorous standards for determining the standard of care and breach in a civil state tort action, but judged by this sort of amorphous, pseudo-national, general accepted standards of medical practice in the United States, um, which is very much a quasi-standard of care, and um, would not the, both the evidentiary basis for that and the qualification of experts uh, would not be allowed in state courts. And in our second brief, our brief on the merits, uh, Professor Oliva wrote a beautiful section at the end that details what that would actually look like in Alabama. And it's very persuasive, but I can't take credit for it. Um, okay. Um, these sort of over-deterring types of responses, um, in particular, the interpretation and erosion of standards under 841, um, were just one of a myriad of incoherent law and policy responses to the growing awareness of the quote-unquote opioid crisis, which was truly a drug poisoning crisis, that um, really reached the public in a, in a significant way in 2013. But I have argued elsewhere that these responses were um, part of an availability cascade or a moral panic in which doctors are so-called bad and undefined term over-prescribing doctors became the folk devils um, in this moral panic. And um, these responses were pretty universal in their oversimplicity, but they were also pretty devastating universally in their effects. And the evidence continues to roll in um, that targeted laws, are laws targeted at the supply only of opioids in particular prescription opioids, um, actually increased the death count um, and drastically increased the number of patients in urgent need of care who had been driven away from doctors and the medical field altogether and into the shadows, which was another repeat of what we saw after the passage of the Harrison Narcotic Tax Act in 1914, where we knew by 1925, at the latest, that we had succeeded in not only through this federal action creating the, the first real illicit underground you know, drug market, right? But we had succeeded in taking people with addiction out of the medical realm and into the criminal realm. Okay. The effects of such ham-handed legal intrusions into the nuanced area of clinical care have a well-documented history in specializing in over-deterrence, 
overregulation and inducing a rush to the safe metal middle of medical practice, where innovation in care for especially complicated patients, like those with substance use disorder or those with chronic persistent pain, where that dies. Even confusion or mistaken beliefs about what clinical behaviors promise legal scrutiny are powerful drivers of behaviors by clinicians that are adverse to the well-being of their patients, but are self-protective and are rational, right? Um, one need look no further than the aftermath of the state laws that have emerged after Dobbs to see that even in states where certain procedures aren't illegal, right, and that's the argument, no, that's not an illegal procedure, um, the fear and the uncertainty about the line between lawful and unlawful conduct um, drives behaviors that are bad for patients, okay. Criminalization of otherwise appropriate clinical care and patients in need of care always induces harm and harms that tend to be dispro disproportionately harmful to those who are already in stigmatized, minoritized, and marginalized groups. These are not unintended consequences. They are foreseen and represent a choice about who matters most in society. And with that, I wanna to turn to just the language of the statute in the opinion. Okay, so the Controlled Substances Act passed in 1970 was an attempt to marry a whole diversity of drug laws um, and bring them under one umbrella under the authority of the Department of Justice, um, what is now the Department of Justice. And, and along with efforts to control the, the legitimate and illegitimate supply of drugs, um, these efforts included explicit findings in the legislation um, that patients in need of care were not getting it under the previous regimes. And so there were, at least initially, real efforts to try and bring people back into the fold, right? And one provision of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Prevention and Control Act, the Controlled Substances Act, starts with the finding that many of the drugs that are so-called controlled substances, um, which this act created, the schedule of controlled substances, um, have legitimate and useful medical purposes. This is the first line, okay? So Congress expresses that they have concerns about making sure people still get care. Okay, so section 841 says, in relevant part, except as authorized, comma, it shall be unlawful for any person knowingly or intentionally to distribute a controlled substance. That is the language of the statute under which uh, prescribers are prosecuted, just like anyone else is prosecuted for drug distribution. And yet, under the language of that statute, at least three circuits had removed knowing and intentionally from the law. But we have to know what authorized means. And of course, that's not clearly defined. So that definition has to be sort of cobbled together from array of statutory provisions and regulations. And there is one main regulation that is foundational to these cases, which is the effective prescription regulation, um, which requires that a pr practitioner prescribe a controlled substance for a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice, okay? A legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practices. 
And so for the first 30 to 40 years of the act, um, the circuits generally applied this law um, with what we called in our first brief, uh, a sort of shaky consensus among the circuits, right? But they all included a mens rea, right? They had some version of the good faith defense that, that until very recently was seen as, you know, was operated not so much as a defense, but as uh, negating the requisite mens rea, right? And they also interpreted, at least initially, that legitimate medical purpose in the usual course language uh, conjunctively, meaning the government had to prove that the doctor or prescriber had done neither of those, okay? But we start to see, beginning about two, 2017, to be honest, is this study erosion in three areas. Um, the first is uh, uh, um, some courts began reading legitimate medical purpose in the usual course disjunctively. And worse yet, most of them chose uh, to interpret that to mean that the government only had to prove that the doctor had knowingly or intentionally departed from the usual course of professional practice, okay? Some of them, including the 10th Circuit, had this strange bifurcation where um, a subjective good faith belief applied to a departure from legitimate medical purposes and an objective reasonable belief um, applied to the usual course departures. So um, that made prosecution much easier. And of course, most of the time they chose to prosecute under that prong, right? Um, they, the good faith defense, the, especially the objective good faith defense was gutted in the 4th, 10th, and 11th circuit um, by collapsing the idea of a reasonable belief into reasonable action, okay? So you only had a good faith belief if your prescriptions were reasonable, which was then interpreted to mean a reasonable prescription was one that hadn't departed from the usual course, right? So it was meaningless, good faith was meaningless, right? And then in Khan, and I feel like this should be a warning to everybody, if your judicial opinion says, unlike the rest of, all the rest of criminal law, and that's basically what it said, unlike all the rest of criminal law, the mens rea here only applies to the act of writing the prescription. So the good faith defense, right, only negated the idea that you didn't know you were writing a prescription. So you had a defense if you wrote in your sleep or in the midst of, you know, a seizure, right? Because that happens a lot and, you know, it makes sense, right? Okay. Um, and so the court eventually takes uh, the Rowan case, consolidates it with Khan, and there were a number of questions presented, but at their heart, and we pointed this out at their heart, they were really aimed at the Sienta requirement. Whether you're talking about what the good faith exception means, right, um, or whether you're dealing with this issue of like putting knowledge into the, just meaning something about being aware that you're doing something like a volitional act rather than a knowing act. Um, 
they were about the center. And this is where the court, in a unanimous opinion that was kind of crammed in sort of an otherwise busy week, um, that didn't get a ton of attention, right? Um, understandably, um, written by Breyer, it, um, focused on that and based its decision not on the federalism concerns, which there are a lot when you're talking about the regulation of medical practice, right? But squarely on the language of the statute and longstanding important principles in criminal law about Center. And in cases like this, the ability of would-be defendants to know the line between unlawful and lawful behavior, right? Especially when they're engaged in activity that, in which controlled substances prescribing is, part of the everyday good practice of medicine, right? Um, and so there were some procedural questions that went with that, which we can defer to the questions period because I am out of time. Um, and with that, I thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Kelly. I, uh, for those who maybe were not completely aware of how things are in the medical practice, I definitely commend her article to you. And the part where she talks about the difficulties of doing that as a nurse and figuring out how much pain medication a patient needs within the bounds of the law while cops are basically practicing medicine. Coming up next is David B. Kopel, uh, who's an adjunct professor at my alma mater, the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. My former professor, I was his research assistant. Uh, he helped me get the internship at Cato. So, and he's the reason I do gun policy. I didn't know anything about guns before I here. I didn't even own a gun. So, uh, so he, there's no one more qualified than Dave to talk about the Bruin case, uh, which uh, dealt with the right to carry a gun. Dave? Good afternoon. <clears throat> the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, in one sense, has fairly, is fairly narrow in its effects because it directly affects only uh, uh, three particular states where the right to bear arms was uh, completely negated, New Jersey, Maryland, and Hawaii. And <clears throat> it also affects parts of three other states where the right to arms was respected in some places uh, within the state, but not, not in others. And those would be uh, California, Massachusetts, and New York. But in addition, Bruin announces a new rule uh, for how a new judicial standard uh, that applies to all gun control laws. Um, and the standard is, gun, and this was based on what the court had done in Heller and McDonald, but lower courts weren't exactly going along with it, as we'll discuss. Uh, the gun control laws that are constitutional are the ones that are consistent with the American tradition of the right to keep and bear arms and the lawful regulation thereof. And laws that are not consistent with that tradition are not constitutional. Uh, one week after Bruin was announced, the court vacated three decisions from lower federal courts of appeals that had upheld bans on common rifles or on magazines uh, in uh, laws from uh, Maryland, Connecticut, and New Jersey. And the court remanded those cases to lower court, uh, back to the courts of appeals uh, to reconsider in light of Bruin. And then just a few weeks later, <clears throat> in Colorado, United States District Court, Judge Raymond Moore, who was appointed by President Obama and unanimously confirmed by the Senate, 
issued a temporary restraining order against a gun and magazine ban that had been, acted by the town, been enacted by the town of Superior, Colorado, which is in, within Boulder County. And soon, similar laws, bans in other Boulder municipalities and in the county itself uh, were also brought under temporary restraining orders, and those TROs will remain in effect until January uh, when there's going to be a, uh, a hearing on a preliminary injunction motion. And uh, U.S. District Courts and other states have also uh, issued some important rulings uh, against the constitutionality of some other gun control laws. What happened in 21, uh, just last June, is a, a big change from what had been uh, judicial torpor uh, in uh, enforcement of the Second Amendment. There was a period of torpor that began uh, after 1939 when the Supreme Court upheld a tax and registration, federal tax and registration system on sawed off shotguns. And then for decades thereafter, the Second Amendment only appeared in Supreme Court cases in, in cameo roles, such as in uh, Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan, the, uh, the younger, the second Justice John Marshall Harlan's uh, famous explication of 14th Amendment liberty in uh, Poe versus Ullman. And in 1989, the court began taking some cases that involved the rights of gun owners, uh, but they were always uh, uh, argued and decided on issues other than the Second Amendment. And one of those cases was Prince versus United States. Congress in 1993 had enacted a law uh, requiring background checks uh, uh, for buying handguns in gun stores <clears throat> and had ordered local law enforcement to carry out the check. Sheriffs all over the country sued and said, Congress, if you, want, if you want to get this done, go hire some federal employees to do it. You can't commandeer us to carry out a congressional statute. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed by five to four in, uh, in, the, uh, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, joined by Justice Thomas. But in that case, he also concurred to point out that there was a Second Amendment issue in this case, and he uh, uh, suggested that uh, it was time for the court to start uh, addressing that. As he wrote, perhaps at some future date, this court will have the opportunity to determine whether Justice Story was correct when he wrote that the right to keep right to bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic. And the court eventually did that 11 years later in uh, the, the Heller case written by Justice Scalia. And then in uh, 2010, <clears throat> McDonald versus Chicago by Justice Alito held that the Second Amendment is applicable to the states via the 14th Amendment, just as most of the rest of the Bill of Rights is. And then the court went back into torpor. Now, some post-Heller, some lower court judges, including then Judge Brett Kavanaugh of the DC Circuit, observed that the Heller decision had been based on text, history, and tradition. And he argued that lower courts should follow that same methodology. But he was in the minority. Most of the lower federal courts post-Heller adopted the test that Justice Breyer had proposed in his dissent in Heller, and which had been specifically repudiated by the Heller majority. Under this approach, judges engage in interest balancing, and then they decide for themselves if an infringement on traditional Second Amendment rights is acceptable. Now, the, this should have been called the Breyer test, but the, the courts uh, somewhat uh, euphemistically called it the two-part, two-step test, or the uh, two-part test. And there certainly were an important number of lower court judges who really conscientiously applied the, that test. But many others uh, 
skewed the rules even further uh, so that the government would always win. For example, many adopted a principle that all the government had to do was introduce some evidence in favor of the law, and that would be enough. And the fact that the challenger of the law had also introduced evidence which undercut the government's evidence, that was irrelevant. The Second, Fourth, and Ninth Circuits were particularly egregious. In the Ninth Circuit, there were decisions sometimes before three-judge panels where a Second Amendment litigant pr would prevail, but then the full circuit would always order an en banc rehearing, even if none of the parties had requested an en banc, and en banc the government always won. So out of the 50 post-Heller Second Amendment cases decided uh, by the Ninth Circuit, the government won all 50. Now, Justice Breyer's interest-balancing interest test is similar to intermediate scrutiny, but without intermediate scrutiny's uh, sub-rules, so it's all the easier for the government to win. Law professor Alan Rostron, who was a uh, former lawyer for the gun control group Handgun Control Incorporated, accurately called the lower court's behavior Justice Breyer's triumph in the third battle over the Second Amendment. And the Supreme Court, while all this was going on, only took one Second Amendment case. In 2016, they struck down a, uh, in a per curiam, uh, reversed a Massachusetts ban on stun guns since the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court had been particularly flagrant in thumbing its nose at Heller uh, by upholding the, the ban on, based on the fact that stun guns didn't exist in 1791 and they didn't seem to be militia arms both rationales which the court had ex expressly repudiated in Heller. And then in 2020, the situation appeared even uh, particularly bleak. The court had granted certiorari in a case involving uh, New York City's rule that licensed handgun owners who live in the city could never take their handgun out of the city, not to a target range in New Jersey, uh, not, not even to a second home outside the city. And the Second Circuit upheld it in a rather brusque uh, manner, then the Supreme Court granted certiorari. New, Jersey, New York City asked for extensions of time, which are common in Supreme Court cases. They used the extension to uh, modify the law, partly giving the plaintiffs some but, all of, but not all of the relief they had sought. And then, as the merits briefing was going on, five Democratic U.S. Senators, Sheldon Whitehouse, Maisie Hirono, Richard Blumenthal, Richard Durbin, and Kirsten Gillibrand sent the court a threat letter in the form of an amicus brief, and they warned that unless the Supreme Court dismissed the case as moot, they would restructure the court. And for whatever reason, six justices applied, justice uh, complied and dismissed it as moot, Justices Leto, Gorsuch, and Thomas dissented, and then a month later, the court uh, dismissed all 10 pending Second Amendment decisions. Uh, Justice Barrett joining the court changed everything. And soon the court granted petition, granted certiorari in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Under New York statutes, an applicant for a concealed carry permit, which is the only way that's lawful to carry in New York, had to have a, a proper cause. Many jurisdictions in New York said, oh, proper cause in, in, could include lawful self-defense, for example, the exercise of constitutional rights. But in many others, such as Rensselaer County, the appellants had to prove a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Well, the opinion in Bruin by Justice Thomas and uh, for six justices explained 
The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. <clears throat> we know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. And therefore, the New York law and its analogs in some other states were unconstitutional. Bruin affirmed that using text, history, and tradition as the basis for a decision is the correct methodology in Second Amendment cases, not interest balancing. In other words, the government has the burden of proof to justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. And as with everything else, you know, judges don't have to be experts in legal history. It's the burdens on the government to come forward with the evidence. And it's not even that burdensome on the government because these days, virtually every case where a gun control law is challenged, either Michael Bloomberg's Everytown organization or the Giffords Law Center will come in and advise the, uh, uh, the local government and provide all the uh, historical research possible. Now, the, uh, Bruin says you can, this tr tradition can be looked at in two ways. Sometimes the government's going to win because a particular law is very similar to a historic law. For example, laws against reckless discharge that say you can't just shoot off a gun in the air, in, in the air in, inside a municipality. But the government can also win with analogical reason, which is, means a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. And this is meant to be neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. So the question to ask is whether a modern gun control and its alleged historical analog are relevantly similar. And Bruin says there are at least two things to consider, the how and the why of the regulations burden on law-abiding citizens' right to armed self-defense. How means whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense. And why means whether the burden is comparably justified. So for example, there might have been in the past uh, fire prevention laws uh, regarding the storage of, of certain quantities of gunpowder, because the black powder of, of that uh, time uh, was e easily ignitable, uh, <clears throat> including by accident. But modern gunpowder, invented in the uh, 1870s and 1880s, is not. And so you couldn't have gunpowder storage restrictions just because you don't like people making their own ammunition at home. Today, with quantity limits that might have been justifiable uh, in, say, 1750 based on fire prevention. So what are some of the, the permissible controls on bearing arms? Well, as of 1791, Carrying a firearm openly was lawful in every state, and so was carrying a firearm concealed. The first state law against concealed carry was enacted by Kentucky in 1813. The Kentucky Supreme Court held it violated the Kentucky constitutional right to arms. But most other concealed carry laws were upheld uh, in, in other jurisdictions. Heller, uh, Bruin adopts that and says the legislature has discretion to regulate the mode of carry, whether it's open or concealed. Concealed carry was considered sneaky in uh, 1870, but now it's preferable socially. If you went to a shopping mall in any of the 44 states that were already obeying uh, the Second Amendment, 
you certainly would be encountering people carrying concealed arms. But they're concealed, so nobody gets upset about it. And that's, that's more compliant with, with modern social standards. Additionally, carrying can be prohibited in what are called sensitive places. Heller had uh, said uh, laws forbidding uh, affirmed, created a rebuttable presumption in favor of laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools or government buildings. The Bruin opinion, uh, citing a law review article I wrote, added to this list some other historic examples, legislative assemblies, polling places, and, and courthouses. Um, and so the opinion says, as for new types of places, not old places that already existed, you know, uh, but new, new types of things, airplanes, rocket ships, among others, uh, that courts can make analogies uh, to those historic uh, uh, sensitive places limits. Now, even though permits weren't needed in, 25, in 1791, and even though they're not needed today, uh, in the majority of states for uh, open carry and in 25 states for concealed carry, uh, Bruin holds that a licensing system can be valid, what's called shall-issue licensing, like with a driver's license, but stricter and tougher. But you have to meet certain objective criteria. And in Bruin's view, that's, that's perfectly fine and would only become a limit if uh, exorbitant fees were charged or there were lengthy waiting times or other abuses of the licensing process. And in terms of how New York's, uh, the ban in some parts of New York on carry uh, lined up against history, uh, the New York Attorney General didn't come close to carrying her burden of proof. You know, there were some examples to cite. For example, after uh, the United Kingdom conquered New Netherland and took it from the Dutch, New, what we call New Jersey today was two separate colonies, one of which was East Jersey, the part near New York City. And for eight years, uh, they not only banned concealed carry, they forbid frontiersmen uh, from carrying uh, uh, handguns at all, uh, either openly or concealed. But this uh, solitary example, as Justice Thomas put it, lasting at most eight years, did not create some tradition. Likewise, for a law uh, in, uh, enacted in the 1870s in Texas, which banned handgun carrying in, in most cases while allowing long gun carrying. And conceitedly, broad restrictions on the right to carry did become more common in the 20th century, as in New York's infamous 1911 Sullivan Act that was at issue in Bruin. But said the court, as with their late 19th century evidence, the 20th century evidence presented by respondents uh, and their amica does not provide enough insight it does not provide insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. Justices Kavanaugh and uh, Roberts joined the opinion in full, but also uh, reiterated uh, Heller's sort of uh, safe harbor list of the rebuttable presumption uh, in favor of certain gun controls. Justice uh, uh, Alito uh, also joined, uh, critiqued the dissent's argument uh, which was a laundry list of all the bad things people do with guns and said, what does this have, you know, stuff about suicide and mass shootings have to do with licensed, trained adults uh, carrying firearms? And Justice Barrett, in concurrence, pointed to uh, the, an issue that is, may become important in the future, but is essentially, as you do, for, do Second Amendment originalism, how much does the 14th Amendment 
uh, period come into play. And she cautioned, the majority does, of don't put uh, too much weight on uh, restrictions from the late 19th century because they don't really illuminate the original meaning. Thank you. Well, we have a little bit of a shorter Q&A period here, so I can get to it. Uh, I do have the first question actually for Kelly from Twitter. Where's Trey? From Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, former Attorney General of the state of Virginia. He asks, uh, in the sentence of your paper, I would appreciate you explaining more detail of innovative pleas, such as in the sentence, in other words, prescribers can no longer be convicted under Section 841 for innovative mistaken, negligent, or less than careful prescribing. So what do you mean by innovative care? Well, I mean, anytime, anytime uh, doctors are trying to, like, push the boundary. So for example, many uh, physicians who take care of people with opioid use disorder have found that the dosage, the dosage needed to properly treat somebody with an, like a pretty significant opioid use disorder of buprenorphine is much higher, right? That's innovative, right? It's, their, their research is ongoing, but the preliminary results are promising, right? But the government can certainly find people to say, gee, that's a very high dose, right? That's a very high dose. Um, so that would, be, that would be an example of like an innovative practice that um, now that, oh, here we go. All right, how much of that do you want me to repeat? There you go, keep going. Yeah, so there are examples, right? In addiction medicine, for example, with buprenorphine dosing, right? That, um, there is evidence and some preliminary evidence and research ongoing that higher doses are needed, higher than what had previously been considered sort of in, within the standard of care. But, but if, say, somebody was prosecuted for that now, um, reading the opinion, right, the government would have to prove that they knew, actually knew, that they were exceeding their authorization, meaning they weren't practicing in the usual course, whereas it seems quite reasonable that an addiction medicine doctor would say, I have these patients, this certain group of patients who, who only do well on this much higher but innovative dose, right? Um, and so the government might find somebody who and certainly would find an expert to say that that was outside the usual course, but now the doctor would be saved by knowledge, right? That they don't think they're, they believe they're, practicing legitimate practice of medicine, right, in the usual course. Thank you. Uh, another one from online uh, for Dave Kopel. Are you aware, or maybe you want to assess the possibility under Bruin of any challenging the NFA's regulations on SBRs, silencers, regulators? Is there more possibility there post-Bruin? Um, the National Firearms yeah, Act. Yeah, exactly. The National Firearms Act of 1934, which imposes a not a, not a prohibition on uh, short-barreled rifles or uh, sound moderators, suppressors. They don't really make a gun silent. Um, you have to pay a $200 tax and go through a registration process that takes months. Um, yes, it's theoretically possible, and under Bruin, I think there's some good arguments to be made. Um, nevertheless, I'm not that uh, optimistic about wins on that, because I, I think you... Uh, at a minimum, it 
courts are going to be comfortable with normal people having normal guns. And that's the, the big picture. And unless they're convinced that these things are in fact normal, um, then however good one's arguments, I don't expect victories out of that. I think you can make arguments that they're normal. Sound suppressors are common in lots of European countries, actually often typically sold with a gun because it reduces noise pollution from the neighbor's point of view and it protects hearing. And uh, short-barreled rifles um, actually are quite common in Puerto Rico because the National Firearms Act, which is a tax measure, uh, doesn't apply in Puerto Rico and they don't seem to be a big problem in Puerto Rico. Um, so the answer is maybe, but don't, uh, don't plan on it soon. Who's doing my mics? Uh, yeah, okay, Nick, uh, Roger Pawan. Yeah. Thank you, Trevor. 46 seconds, Roger. Yes, okay. My question is for Evan Burnick. I quite agree that the opinion of Alito uh, left much to be desired, uh, not least because of its reliance on Glucksburg. But I wonder if you think that the result was right in sending the issue back to the states. And I give you this. If a doctor took the life of a baby a day after birth, we would have a clear criminal law case. Well, what's the difference if the doctor took the life of the baby a day before birth, or two days, or three days, and so on down the line? In other words, we've got a question of when does murder begin. That is a criminal law question properly decided under the state police power, which is exactly the result that we get. And this is a result that was pointed to by no less than Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her Madison lecture in 1992 at NYU. So what say you about the idea that this is properly decided by the states given that we've got an issue about which reasonable people can have reasonable differences. I do not think that you can extract from the original meaning of the 14th Amendment a plausible defense of Roe v. Wade. I do think, however, that the idea that states, because they are free to define and punish crimes generally, in some reasonable ambits, um, uh, anything resembling an unlimited discretion to define and punish crimes however they should choose is something that is dependent upon premises about the status of uh, prenatal persons under the Constitution in important respects that can't quite be captured by a leave it to the state's approach. Let me be a little bit more concrete about that. Um, there is no doubt that compelling people upon pain of incarceration or fines to go through pregnancy and to give birth is an infringement upon their liberty. In order to justify that under the police powers, you are going to need to make a reasonable argument that you are furthering an interest within the proper scope of the state's police powers, the protection of life, liberty, or property. And so, the question is, what is the status of a prenatal person? 
And I don't think that if you left it entirely up to states to decide that, you could get to a, a police powers doctrine that is limited in scope in any meaningful respect. There's got to be some floor on what states can do. And insofar as that's the case, I think that while Roe is probably indefensible and um, arguments to defend it on originalist grounds are probably unsuccessful. I regret the degree to which Alito cast this to the states without even intimating that there might be constitutional limits on what they could do in the space of abortion, not even to the extent of Chief Justice Rehnquist's dissent in Roe, in which he said it would doubtless violate the 14th Amendment's ban on irrational government treatment to compel people to give birth even at the risk of their own lives. All right, we got one minute. Professor Amari, I saw you had your hand up, but can you ask a question in one minute? <laughs> Maybe take it up after. Congratulations to David Kopel for all your work and, and your triumphs. In principle, analogic reasoning is good but imperfect because no analogies are perfect. Cost-benefit analysis is good but imperfect. Is analogic reading, reasoning sort of in principle better, or is the real problem that the lower courts just weren't doing, taking seriously a, a kind of um, serious um, a, analysis? Um, um, so um, there's the yeah. question. I, I'd say in, in the First Amendment on freedom of speech, there's plenty of cost-benefit analysis. You know, that, that's what the strict scrutiny and intermediate scrutiny are. And I, I think that works out pretty well. You know, I think the state of speech in this country is pretty good. Um, so I think the answer is, is uh, your other choice that only some courts were treating the Second Amendment intermediate scrutiny the same way they would treat First Amendment intermediate scrutiny. And too many were just blowing things off and uh, allowing the court to get, you know, allowing governments to get away with, with anything. All right, perfect, great answer. Well, join me in thanking our panel.